book of 1 Corinthians, the passage we'll be looking at this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This particular passage, of course, is well known as one of the sort of classic statements of the Apostle Paul, and is certainly fitting for our weekend together, which has sort of this apologetic feel about it as we think about how our world views the cross and yet how we affirm the beauty and truth of the cross. And so we want to take a moment just to hear from our Lord about this. Even though we'll be looking at numerous verses throughout the sermon this morning, I just want to read just verse 18 of chapter 1 uh, as we begin this morning. So let's listen to what God has to say to us. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray and ask him to bless our time together this morning. Our Lord, we come to you as your people needing to hear your voice. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to us today. And Lord, impress the truth of this passage upon our hearts. That though the cross looks like folly in the eyes of the world, we know, Lord, that it is not folly. But it is wisdom, truth, and the power of God. Bless our time now as we explore this further in Christ's name. Amen. It's not easy to be a Christian in today's world, is it? You know this, of course, whether you've walked with Christ for many, many years or perhaps you're a new convert. We know that in our world today, in the culture that surrounds us, walking with Christ can be a difficult and challenging affair. We feel pushed and pulled and influenced here and there, and all the challenges we hear every day around us are difficult to bear. But of all the ways that Christianity is challenged in our world, I think there's one that sort of stands out above the rest, and that is the way that Christianity is routinely criticized, even mocked and made fun of for being intellectually deficient. Our world looks at the message of Christianity and finds it to be simply ridiculous. It is silly foolishness. As the text we just read, they regard it as folly. After all, our world comes to us and says, you Christians believe in some really hard things, some really bizarre things. You believe in this invisible God that you can't see or empirically prove. You believe in a spiritual world filled with angels and demons. You Christians believe in miraculous interventions where seas can be parted and the sun can stop in the sky and axe heads can float. You believe that demons can be exercised and people can be healed and from their diseases and you can even raise people from the dead. And above and beyond this, you Christians have a moral code that is outdated and antiquated and all around prudish and that, well, code we left a long time ago in our culture. And above and beyond that, you Christians have a moral code that we regard as problematic and offensive and narrow-minded and dogmatic and convinced that you're right and everyone else is wrong. Now, when you hear it put like that, 
There's a side of us this morning that might even begin to wonder ourselves whether Christianity makes sense. In fact, I imagine that most of us from time to time in our life have that little tickle of doubt in the back of our mind and we're thinking, well, maybe what I believe really is foolish. Why does it seem that if Christianity is true that the smartest people in the world reject it? That's the kind of questions you're asking, and we all ask those questions from time to time in our lives, don't we? If that's on your mind at all this morning, that's exactly the situation that the Corinthians found themselves in when Paul wrote this letter. See, you have to know a little bit about first century Corinth to understand what Paul's trying to do here. You see, Corinth fancied itself pretty much as a philosophical center in the ancient Greco-Roman world. It wasn't far from Athens, and the philosophies would make their way down to where they were, and they prided themselves on having the latest thoughts and the latest wisdom and the latest ideas, and they were very much proud of their own intellectual prowess there in Corinth. And then along comes Christianity, and a, a church begins, and a, and a group of believers begins to follow and worship Jesus, and then they begin to realize something. They look at Paul and they say, Paul, hold on a second. If Christianity is true, then why is it that all these intellectual elites around us in Corinth don't believe it? If Christianity is true, then why have most of the sophisticated philosophers of our day rejected it? And that is a fundamental question for all of us. Why is it seem like the smartest people on the planet don't believe in Christianity if in fact it's true? And so Paul addresses here this somewhat of, a, of an intellectual crisis, if you will, at the Corinthian church. And he's going to address it by helping them make some adjustments. Really, he's going to lay out three adjustments here he wants the Corinthians to make. And these are going to be critical for us, too, because as we've already observed, we find ourselves in a world that's not that different than the world of first century Corinth. So let's just walk through these three adjustments together this morning. Make sure your Bibles are open to that passage we just read, even though uh, verse 18 is sort of our core text. I'm going to be walking us around into some of the other verses surrounding that today. So what are these three adjustments Paul wants to make? We begin with the first, and that is Paul wants us to adjust our expectations. Adjust our expectations, and to remind us that Christianity will always look foolish in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of a non-Christian unless God, by his Spirit, intervenes. You see, what's going on here in this first point, Paul wants to challenge a belief that you and I have in the back of our mind, and we don't even know we have it. It's one of those beliefs in the back of our mind that we, we hold to and we, we use in the world around us, but we've never stopped to reflect upon it. And that belief in the back of our mind goes something like this. We think if something is true... Most people will believe it. We're convinced of this. If something is true, most people will believe it, we think. And therefore, if most people believe something, we think, well, therefore, it must be true. And we go through our world thinking that. And Paul points out here in this passage that if you think that way, it's going to land you in a quandary because you're going to look out into the world and realize that most people don't think Christianity is true. And you're going to conclude as a result that therefore Christianity must not be true or couldn't be true, or at least I should really doubt whether it's true because the majority of people say it's not. In fact, I see this all the time in my own field in the world of uh, New Testament scholarship. When I go around and speak at different churches like this one, one of the most common questions I get is, if the Bible really is true, then why is it that most scholars reject it? 
Pretty good question, right? The Bible's really the word of God. Why do most scholars say it's not? But notice what's lurking behind that question is this idea that, well, something's true. Most people are just going to see that it's true. They're just going to obviously recognize truth for what it is. But Paul says, hold on right there, you Corinthians. I've got an adjustment to make in your expectations. And he says it in the opening verse we just read in verse 18. Don't you realize, says Paul, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. They don't come to it neutral. They don't come to it with a blank slate. They don't come to it sort of undecided. The natural man without the spirit already has decided, already regards God as foolish, wants nothing to do with him. Get your expectations straight, says Paul. Unless the Spirit intervenes, people are going to reject the gospel. And of course, as we know, the Spirit, by God's grace, does intervene. But Paul here makes the point, don't use that as a reason. People's rejection, that is, for thinking Christianity cannot be true. Now, what's interesting about this first adjustment Paul wants to make, he actually explains in a little more detail what it is that people think is foolish about Christianity. Or, to put it another way, he explains why people reject it in his own day. And like most times, when Paul talks about the world, he divides it into two groups, Jew and Gentile, or Jew and Greek. And here he's going to explain to us why Jews and Greeks regard the cross as folly. He starts with the Jews first. Look down in verse 23, what he says there about the Jews. He says, well, we preach Christ crucified. And then he says, but that's a stumbling block to Jews. Now, this word stumbling block is interesting. It's the Greek word scandalon. You can hear that and realize that's where we get our our English word scandal from. And that's exactly what Paul means here. For for the Jews, the idea of a a crucified Messiah was was scandalous. It was was ridiculous. It It was not how God was supposed to do things. When God sends his Messiah into the world, he's not sending his Messiah to die. He's sending his sending his Messiah to conquer. The Messiah was supposed to come and cast off the Roman government, not get killed by the Roman government. And so for the Jews to look at a crucified Messiah was to, was to be completely at odds with what God in their mind was supposed to do. God was supposed to come and flex his muscles, not die humiliated on a cross. In fact, even in Jesus' own ministry, don't forget that when Jesus says to his own disciples, I'm going to go and die, even they're not on board. Don't forget that Peter pulled Jesus aside and said, no, 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 Jesus, that's not how it works. Let me explain to you how the Messiah is supposed to be. You're not supposed to go and die. You're supposed to go and conquer and rule. And so for the Jews, they were looking for a display of power, and this was not it. Now, the Gentiles had their own objections, right? The Greeks, notice what Paul says about them in the very same verse. He says it's a stumbling block to Jews, verse 23, folly to Gentiles, and then back up to verse 22, he tells us why the Greeks seek wisdom. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you know those Gentiles you're, you're wondering about? Well, they're always on the lookout for the latest wisdom. The word there is Sophia. It's the latest philosophies, the latest ideas, what tickles their fancy, what they find to be intriguing and entertaining. And you have to realize, says Paul, that when they look at a crucified Messiah, that is not it. Why? Because crucifixion for a Roman was the height of humiliation. It's not something that's cause for worship. It's cause for derision. 
You see, you and I are convinced and have in our mind that the whole point for crucifixion was that this was a really effective way to kill people. And we think that's why the Romans used it. That's not the main reason the Romans used crucifixion. Yes, of course, it killed people, but it killed people very slowly over time. And its main goal was not just to end a person's life painfully. The main goal of crucifixion, which we often miss, was designed to humiliate a person, to subject them to scorn and embarrassment, To lay up on a cross in front of everybody was a sign of utter debasement. It was a way of taking someone and saying, this person is worth nothing. To then go to a Roman and say, I think you should worship this crucified Savior. They're thinking, what in the world are you talking about? A number of years ago, there was an archaeological excavation in in Rome, actually, where they uncovered a, a second century Roman wall. And they discovered on this Roman wall writing actually a picture that had been drawn, what we would call graffiti. In case you think that writing on walls is a new thing in the modern world, think again, right? We've been writing on walls for thousands of years. And on this wall, they uncovered a picture that someone had drawn of a man hanging on a cross. And he hung on the cross with a head of a donkey. And then there was drawn also a picture of a person at the bottom of the cross worshiping him. And then someone had written in Greek, Alexa Menos worships his God. Alexa Menos was just the Greek name Alex. And someone was in this drawing making fun of a Christian they knew named Alex and said, look at Alex, look at Alexa Menos, worship his silly, ridiculous crucified God who they put up on the cross with the head of a donkey to show the mocking and derision that's deserved. That's what the Romans think, says Paul. And don't you realize there's no way without the Spirit's help they're going to believe in the good news of the gospel. To put it another way, Paul's point is simple. Is that Don't you realize that everything about the gospel is contrary to what man would want religion to be? If man were to make up a religion, it wouldn't look like this, says Paul. If man were to make up a religion, think about it, it would be a religion that probably didn't even have a God. And if he made up a religion and it had a God, it would be a very distant God. And if he had a very distant God, it would be a God that was probably like a big teddy bear in the sky that just loved you and wanted to live, you to live whatever lifestyle you wanted. If man were to make up a religion, there would be no wrath, no judgment, no hell, no sin. If man would make up a religion, there would be no saving. If anyone was saving anybody, it would be man saving himself. If man were to make up a religion, says Paul, it wouldn't look anything like Christianity. Don't you realize, therefore, that without the help of the Spirit, the natural man will not receive the things of God? Here's the point Paul's trying to make here, and it's very basic. Don't miss it this morning. Don't think for a moment, he says, that the rejection of Christianity by the world has anything to do with whether it's true. It is not the litmus test for truth. In fact, on the contrary, you can see exactly why all these other groups regard the cross as foolishness. And short of the grace of God by the Spirit, people will not believe. You need to adjust your expectations, says Paul. Of course, before we leave this first point, it needs to be noted that it's not just the world out there that finds the cross silly. Sometimes it's the world in here. 
I mean, who knows? Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know what you think about Jesus. Maybe you're here with a friend or a guest, and maybe you've been coming for a while and you're not a Christian and you find the cross to be silly and ridiculous. You have to realize here that it takes the work of the Spirit to help someone see the beauty and the wonder for the cross or about what the cross really is. And here is an opportunity this morning for you to reflect on Paul's point. Don't think for a moment that all the attacks on the gospel have anything to do with whether it's true. Of course, Paul's not done, though. He has a second expectation, or sorry, a second adjustment he wants us to make uh, in our lives. And it's not just adjusting our expectations. That was first. Secondly, now, Paul wants us to adjust our thinking. He wants to adjust our mind. In other words, Paul wants us to realize that it's not Christian thinking that's actually foolish, but in the end of the day, it's actually non-Christian thinking that proves to be foolish. Let me explain what Paul is getting at here in this second adjustment. See, Paul recognizes that as soon as he makes the statement that Christianity is regarded as foolish or folly in the eyes of the world, he knows there are some people that might actually, in the Christian world, think it is foolish. In other words, there might be some believers who hear that and think, okay, so I just have a foolish religion, and I guess it doesn't make any sense, but I guess it's all I've got, and so I guess I'll just believe in Jesus anyway, even though it doesn't really cohere or fit together, and I guess I just have a foolish faith, and that's what I'm stuck with, and all right, I'll just press on. Paul's like, hold hold on a second. That's not what I'm saying. Yes, Christianity looks foolish in the eyes of the world, but it's not Christianity that's actually intellectually foolish. In fact, Paul's going to go on to say here in the second point that it's actually non-Christian thinking that's foolish. It's actually non-Christian thinking that proves to be intellectually bankrupt. Now, this second point is really critical for us to get today because in the modern evangelical world, and I I certainly think this church, knowing this church is an exception to this rule, generally speaking, but in the modern evangelical world, there's an anti-intellectual strain of Christianity that I think Paul would be all too happy to uh, respond to in this passage. And that, in, that anti-intellectual strain of Christianity kind of goes something like this. A person's trying to follow Jesus in their life, and they're getting peppered with objections all the time, and they think, well, I don't know how to handle this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of just pretend it isn't happening, and I'm going to just make Christianity all about my own personal religious experience. And Christianity is all about a feeling, and Christianity is all entirely personal and individualistic. And it doesn't really matter if it's really true out there because it's true in here for me. And so I'm just going to ignore all that. I don't have to worry about whether Christianity makes sense. I'm just going to have my own little private religion. And Paul's like, hold on a second. Yes, there's an experiential part of Christianity. And yes, it's personal. But it really is true. Objectively out there, it makes more sense. It's more Rational. It's more intellectually defensible to be a Christian than in any other way to think. So Paul wants us to realize in this second point that we have to adjust our minds here and realize that Christianity is not foolish. It's paradoxical to be sure Christianity looks foolish, but the irony here is it's actually non-Christian thought that proves to be intellectually foolish. Now, of course, Paul has all kinds of complaints here about non-Christian thought, but let me boil down his major complaint. You might ask, okay, what's his big beef here with non-Christian thinking? And I'm just going to lay it out for you. It's simply this. His big complaint is that non-Christian thinking at the end of the day depends 100% on a person's own finite, fallible human mind. 
To put it another way, Paul goes to the Corinthians and says, you know those intellectual elites out there that you're so intimidated by? Don't you realize that all their thinking, all their musings, all their theories, all their teachings are dependent 100% and fully on their own finite, fallible, fallen human minds. All you're getting from them is simply human wisdom with all the limitations therein. And why would, you prove, why would you choose that, says Paul, over God's own wisdom? And here's where in this passage Paul sort of throws down the gauntlet and says, look, I don't care what scholars you've got there in Corinth, bring them on. Lay them up against God's wisdom. Let's see how it goes. All of them are going to fall short of God's wisdom and at the end of the day look like fools. Notice what he says here in verse 19, quoting the Old Testament. For it is written, this is God speaking, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And then look down in verse 20. Paul says, bring them all on. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Where are your smartest people, says Paul? Where are your scholars, all those intellectual elites? Look what he says next. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? You see how he's turning the tide here, or flipping the tables? The same word here is used. Paul says, we're considered foolish, but yet God says it's actually the non-Christian thinking that proves to be foolish. Because it's based solely and only on human wisdom. To help you understand that, I want you to think back for a moment to the last conversation you had with a non-Christian friend. Just kind of go there in your mind with me for a second. It could be a neighbor or maybe a co-worker or a family member, and I want you to think about how that conversation went. And one of the things you'll realize as you reflect upon these kinds of conversations is that you'll realize how your non-Christian friend makes amazing, grand, sweeping truth claims. You ever noticed how many grand, sweeping truth claims are made in a conversation you have with your non-Christian friend. He'll talk about whether God exists or doesn't exist. He'll talk about if God does exist, what God is like, what God would do, what God wouldn't do, what God approves of, what God doesn't approve of. He'll talk about the way salvation works and how God is pleased with you and how you get to heaven or how you avoid hell or how eternity works or how God operates. Huge, enormous, grand, sweeping truth claims. And Paul, in this passage, would come to that individual and ask one simple question, and he wants us to ask the same question, and that is, how do you know any of that? How does your non-Christian friend know what God would do or wouldn't do? Or what he's like or not like, or what he approves of or doesn't approve of? All he's working with is his own finite, fallen human mind. And this, of course, is the very difference for the Christian in the position we're in. We're not working with our own finite, fallen human mind. We as Christians are depending on God's own revealed word about himself. Now, our non-Christian friend will say, oh, I don't believe the Bible, so that doesn't matter. But he's missing the point entirely. The issue isn't whether they believe the Bible. The question is which worldview, the Christian or the non-Christian one, has a basis to make grand sweeping truth claims. One that purports to have just their own brain or one that at least purports to have divine revelation. And this is Paul's point. When it comes to an intellectually coherent worldview, the foolishness lies not with Christianity, but with every other system that sets itself up against God. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you, uh, 
kind of find yourself on what you might call an intellectual quest. Maybe you, you, you fancy yourself to be a truth seeker today. Paul has a very clear message for you and for all of us. And that is if you want to know about the truth of eternity, if you want to know the truth about God, if you want to know the truth about heaven and hell and salvation, you're not going to get there on the basis of your own human wisdom. You're only going to get there by listening to and depending upon God's own revelation of himself in his word. Intellectual coherence, then, according to Paul, is an exercise of dependence on God and his word, not intellectual independence of God off and doing your own thing. Now, of course, Paul's not done. This leads us to a third and final adjustment he wants to make in us. Remember, he wants to adjust our expectations, realize, look, people are going to reject the gospel, and don't be upset by that. God does intervene, but realize that, that that's not a test of its truthfulness. And then, as we just seen, adjust your minds. Realize that Christianity actually is intellectually robust and trustworthy. And then thirdly and finally here, Paul wants to adjust our attitudes. To adjust our attitudes. He wants us to realize something very paradoxical, and that is if you really understand Christianity, you're going to realize that it's designed by God to bring intellectual humility. It's by, designed by God to bring intellectual humility. You see, in this third point, Paul realizes another danger about what he's saying. One of the dangers, of course, is he realizes some people in his audience might think Christianity is really foolish. He's already addressed that danger, but now he realizes there's another danger. If you tell your audience that Christianity is true and intellectually robust and that it makes sense and that the non-Christian view of things is actually foolish, there's a danger of what we would call intellectual pride. Paul realizes there's some in his congregation that might begin to think that they're Christians because they're smarter than other people. Or that they're Christians because they were just able to figure it out more quickly. Or that they're believers because they're just more intellectually sophisticated. And Paul, in this third point, has a very clear message, and that is, hold on a second, and you've missed everything I've said. You have to realize that the only reason you know about the truth of the gospel, the only reason that the cross is not seen as foolishness to you, is not because you're smarter. It's not because you are intellectually quicker. It's because God showered his grace and mercy on you to open up your eyes to see. In other words, once you realize the truth of Christianity, it's not cause for boasting. It's the opposite. It's the cause for humility. It's the cause to give all glory to God. It's a cause to say, if it wasn't for God saving me, opening my eyes to see these things, I would never see them for what they are. In other words, Paul is saying, don't be like the arrogant Corinthian philosophers who are proud of their own intellectual ability. You have a sense of your own dependence of God, and that should lead to humility. Now, if that's true then what Paul is saying is really revolutionary. In fact, incredibly revolutionary, because what Paul is saying here is that you can be absolutely certain of the truth of Christianity and absolutely humble at the same time. I want you to hear that again. If what Paul is saying here is true, then you can be absolutely certain and absolutely humble at the same time. Now, our world will tell you that's impossible. You know why the world will tell you that's impossible? Because they, they want you to think that the definition of humility is uncertainty. 
That to, to be humble means that you have to go around and say, I don't know. To be humble is to go around and say, well, who knows these things? To be humble in the world's eyes is to say, well, you can never be, be sure. Paul says, no, that's not the definition of humility. You can be absolutely certain and absolutely humble at the same time. Why? You can be absolutely certain because God has revealed it to you. So you can be certain of it. And you can be absolutely humble. Why? Because God has revealed it to you. And you didn't figure it out yourself. See, what this is, is something that unlocks the key to how we can be absolutely certain and absolutely humble at the same time. And he drives this point home to the Corinthians, in in my opinion, in a rather humorous way by saying, you know how I know, says Paul, that you're not saved by how smart you are? It's because you Corinthians aren't very smart. In fact, in a later verse, we don't have time to look at it, down in verse 26, he goes, well, when it comes to sort of, you know, great education and noble birth and intellectual acumen, you Corinthians are not it. But God did save you, and you do have truth, and you can be certain of it. You know, if this is the way it works, there's a real key implication for us. And that is, when we share the gospel with people, we no longer have to worry about trying to make it as less offensive as we possibly can. Ever been in a situation where you're sharing the gospel with someone and you think to yourself, you know, if I say what I'm getting ready to say, they're going to be offended. If I tell them what the gospel message really is, they're going to get upset. So maybe I shouldn't really say it. Maybe I should just tweak it a little bit. Maybe I should modify it and adjust it so that people aren't bothered by what the gospel message is because I don't want them to get upset. But once you realize that it's all by the grace and mercy of God, now you're free to deliver the message as it is without trying to improve it, without trying to make it more palatable to your audience. Believe me, we are not going to come up with a better message than God has come up with. God does not need our help to improve the message. It's not like God's asking for feedback about what we think about the gospel message. Hey guys, you think I can improve this at all? Think I can tweak this? It's not as if God wants us to come to him and go, God, you know, this message just isn't really what it could be. Let me, let me help you knock off some of the rough edges here. God's like, that is not your job. Your job is not to improve the message. The, the message doesn't need improvement. When you understand the message with the eyes of the Holy Spirit, the message is wonderful. It's glorious. It's a person who's died on the cross for your sins. It's someone that has saved you from depths of darkness. It's someone who's given himself fully for you. It's not offensive. It's wonderful. But you can't see it without the help of the Holy Spirit. I'm not not going to change the message, says God. It's a wonderful message. It's good news. It's the power of God for those being saved. It doesn't need to be tweaked. It doesn't need to be modified. It needs to be proclaimed. What's our job then? It's very simple. God calls us to just be faithful proclaimers. We don't have to be the smartest people. We don't have to be the people who all have PhDs. You don't have to try to improve the message. Just need to deliver it and leave it in God's hands. As we draw this to a close this morning, I'm reminded of that Roman wall outside of the city of Rome I mentioned a moment ago. What's interesting about that archaeological excavation is that it continued and they realized there was more writing. You remember that the original drawing was a man on the cross with the head of a donkey and 
Alexa Menos being mocked for worshiping him. But then as they uncovered the wall, they realized someone had written a response to the first statement. The first statement said, Alexa Menos worships his God, how silly. And then the next statement in response said, Alexa Menos is faithful. Alexa Menos is faithful. And that is the message of this passage today. Paul says the Christian message is absolutely true. You can rely on it, you can trust it, even though the world regards it as folly. And our message isn't to be improvers of it or the smartest people, but to be faithful. Faithful proclaimers of it to a needy world. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we confess that sometimes we doubt and we wonder whether the message is true. And Lord, we confess that sometimes we don't always believe it's true and think it's foolish ourselves. And we we confess that. We repent of that today. Remind us how we can trust this message is true. And Lord, we can can be certain because you revealed it to us by your grace. We are recipients of divine mercy. And for that reason, we can be absolutely sure it's true. Give us that confidence now to be faithful proclaimers to a needy world that needs a message of a crucified Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.